Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual abuse, violence, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 18-year-old Stacy Lannard sat with her head in her hands inside the cold interrogation room. Through the spaces between her fingers, she saw the detectives looking at her with narrow, suspicious eyes. They didn't understand. They couldn't fathom what she'd been through. She thought about her little sister, Christy. Officers had taken her into custody too. The idea of the 16-year-old going to jail made Stacy's stomach lurch. After a minute of silence, one of the detectives finally offered Stacy a weak smile and tried to sweet talk her. He promised her he could help if she told him the truth. But Stacy couldn't tell him what had really happened. All she could say was that her father hurt her. She wouldn't give details. The last decade had been one long, unspeakable nightmare. She was too ashamed to admit what happened in that house. The detective sighed and said, if you don't take the blame, it's going to look bad for your sister. At that, Stacy sat up straight, locking eyes with Schulte. She responded, I'll tell you whatever you want. Just let her go. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. Last week, we discussed Stacey Lannert's relationship with her father, Tom. Beginning when she was just eight years old, Tom sexually abused Stacy for over a decade. Her only consolation was that her little sister, Christy, was spared. However, on July 4th, 1990, Tom raped 16-year-old Christy for the first time. To Stacy, it became a tipping point. Her father had finally gone too far. This week, we'll see how Stacy's anger and resentment finally boiled over. We'll discuss the resulting crime and the glaring injustice at the subsequent trial. We'll also explore how Stacy persevered and managed to turn a lifetime of abuse into a message of hope. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 
On the afternoon of July 4, 1990, 16-year-old Christy Lannard insulted her father, 44-year-old Tom, after he refused to give her money for a haircut. In any other household, the matter would be trivial, but Tom, who was unstable, drunk, and sadistic, reacted with violence. He threatened to kill Stacy's puppy, Caitlin, then pulled Christy into his bedroom and raped her. 18-year-old Stacy slammed her fist into the locked door, powerless to protect her sister from their father's abuse. When the ordeal was over, Christy escaped her father's room and ran outside with Stacy. The two of them jumped in the car, but before they zoomed away, Stacy stopped in her tracks. She couldn't just leave, not without a fight. Stacy stormed back into her father's home, determined to give him a piece of her mind. He'd ruined his daughter's lives. He'd destroyed the people he was supposed to love and protect. She was going to make him understand the horror of what he'd done. As soon as she stepped through the door, however, her resolve suddenly faltered. Painful memories came rushing to the surface and drained the energy right out of her. Instead of pounding on her father's bedroom door, she collapsed onto the living room couch and sobbed into a pillow. Then, out of nowhere, the sound of a gunshot cut through her anguish. Stacy froze. A second blast followed suit, and she snapped upwards. Behind her, a mere foot above her head, two bullets had torn through the wall. On the other side of the room, her father smirked at her, brandishing a 22 caliber rifle. The barrel was still smoking. There was nowhere for her to run. Stacy stared at her father, too stunned to move. She thought he would shoot again at any moment, but he made no move to fire. Instead, he lowered the rifle, leaned it against the wall, and walked away. Stacy listened to her father's footsteps recede as he returned to his room. For another moment, she stayed as still as a statue. After he shut the bedroom door, Stacy tiptoed back outside, where Christy was still sitting in the car. The two of them sped out of the neighborhood, not quite sure where they were headed. After driving in circles for a while, Stacy and Christy decided to go to the VP Fair, an Independence Day celebration in St. Louis. Although they'd just experienced incredible trauma, the sisters acted like everything was normal as they headed to the fair to meet with some friends. Before I continue with their psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. A 2012 article written by psychologists and psychiatrists from Duke University and the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor outlined the different coping strategies commonly utilized by victims of sexual abuse. In this case, Stacy and Christy were suppressing their emotions, which is known as avoidant coping. Though she'd endured more than 10 years of torture, Stacy had never told her sister that Tom raped her. Neither of them had confided the details about their father's physical and sexual abuse to anyone. Their avoidant coping left them emotionally isolated, even from each other. According to the article, Evidence seems to suggest that avoidant coping may be particularly detrimental with regard to the development of future psychiatric symptoms in sexually abused children. 
Researchers hypothesize that avoidant coping may stop victims from seeking outside support, making it more difficult to cope with and heal from trauma. At the time, however, neither Stacy nor Christy realized how distant and alone they really felt. In her book, Redemption, Stacy wrote, "'We were accustomed to living with terror inside our house. Then we'd walk out of our hellhole and act like everything was okay.'" But things weren't okay. At the VIP fair, Stacy and Christy drank together, hoping to forget what had happened. Then they went out to eat and stayed at a friend's house until around 11 p.m., when Stacy was sober enough to drive. She originally planned to get a hotel room, but then had a terrible realization. In her rush to get away from Tom, she left Caitlin, the puppy, back at the house. She had to go back to save the dog. She was sure Tom would kill it if he hadn't already. The two of them arrived back at the house around midnight. Stacy meant to slip in and out as fast as possible, but once they got inside, Christy went to grab some of her stuff from her room. Tom was passed out on the couch. Stacy didn't want to think about what might happen if he woke up. Christy ran to her bedroom. While she was gone, Stacy noticed Tom's rifle leaning against the wall where he'd left it. Stacy watched her father sleep. He made her sick. There were too many emotions, guilt, rage, shame, and hatred to sort through. Her head spun, the world a spiral of pain. She had no idea what she and Christy were going to do. They could afford a hotel for a few nights, but it wouldn't take long for their money to run out. Then she knew they'd end up back at Tom's house because nobody else was there to help them. She was desperate. As long as Tom lived, Stacy thought, she and Christy would never be safe. They could run, but he'd find a way to hunt them down. There was nowhere to hide. Stacy looked at the rifle, then at Tom. Snoring on the couch, he was as defenseless as he would ever be. Stacy grabbed the gun, not letting herself think about the consequences. She just raised the rifle, closed her eyes, and pulled the trigger. The bullet ripped through Tom's shoulder. Stacy opened her eyes to see him bolt upright, blood gushing from the wound. He winced in pain, then screamed at Stacy to call an ambulance. But Stacy was done listening to him. She fired the rifle again, then dropped it on the floor between them. As she watched the blood cover Tom's torso, Stacy immediately regretted what she'd done. While her father doubled over in pain, she scrambled to grab the phone, but it wasn't in its usual spot. She turned around and ran down to the basement, frantically searching. Halfway down the stairs, she remembered what had happened. Before Tom had dragged Christy into his bedroom, he'd ripped all the telephone wires out of the wall so Stacy couldn't call for help. All the hatred returned in an instant, drowning out her sympathy. Tom had sealed his own fate. From the basement, she could hear him cursing, but by the time she got back upstairs, he'd passed out on the couch probably from a combination of drunkenness and blood loss. Stacy, pick the rifle back up. 
she fired a third shot straight into her father's head. He died instantly. Christy rushed out of her room and screamed. Stacy couldn't tell her exactly what had happened. It was already becoming a blur to her. She knew she'd done a terrible thing, but she also knew that Tom was never going to hurt her or her sister ever again. They were finally safe. Stacy grabbed her puppy and the rifle off the floor and ran outside. She put the gun into the trunk and then she and Christy sped away from the scene. When we return, police find Tom's body. Hey, Parkasters. Starting October 1st, we're bringing you the scariest, most hair-raising ghost stories ever imagined. Every Thursday on the all-new original series, Haunted Places, Ghost Stories, Alastair Murden summons a new spine-tingling tale of wraiths, phantoms, and chilling apparitions. These stories come from all over the world, including Japan, India, the UK, and even ancient Rome. Don't miss stone-cold classics like The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood, a sinister account of a condemned murderer's final wish, and the lengths he'd go to fulfill it, and The Miserere, a Spanish tale of a wandering musician who hears a terrifyingly beautiful song in a burned-out monastery and is doomed to capture its notes until he dies. You can find and follow Haunted Places, Ghost Stories, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, October is our favorite month and one of our busiest. So make sure to search Parcast Network in the Spotify search bar to see all our new shows. Now back to the story. 44-year-old Tom Lannert sexually abused and raped his oldest daughter, 18-year-old Stacy, for nearly a decade. On the afternoon of July 4th, 1990, he raped his younger daughter, 16-year-old Christy, for the first time. In the early morning hours of July 5th, Stacy shot and killed Tom in his home. She and Christy then fled the scene. Stacy dropped Christy and her puppy, Caitlin, off at a friend's house where she knew they'd be safe, but she had no idea what to do next. She needed to talk to someone she trusted. Around 4.30 a.m., she drove to her friend Ron's house for help. He offered to drive her car to a nearby river to dump the evidence. Meanwhile, another friend, Jason, came to pick Stacy and Christy up. Together, they formed a plan. Jason agreed to drop the sisters off back at their father's house, where they would pretend to find Tom dead, then run to a neighbor for help. The idea wasn't exactly foolproof. As soon as Stacy saw her father's body, she got dizzy. She managed to get a neighbor to call the police but by the time officers arrived, both sisters were sick with guilt. Their cover story was clearly a lie. Within minutes, the jig was up. Officers handcuffed Stacy and Christy and brought them in for questioning. Seeing her sister in custody broke Stacy's heart. Tom's death was her fault. The idea that her sister might face consequences for her violence was too much to handle. However, when detectives questioned Stacy, she had trouble putting her motivation into words. Detective Schulte had experience with domestic violence victims and could tell Stacy had been abused. But when he tried to prompt her for information, she only answered him vaguely. 
In the past, Stacy's cries for help had been met with indifference or further pain. She had no reason to believe this time would be any different. In Stacy's own words, I could hardly speak, let alone tell a husky stranger, a man, what I'd been through. But when Schulte reminded Stacy of her sister's position, she opened up, not about the abuse, but about the crime. She took full responsibility for Tom's death and begged the detectives to let her sister go. By midnight on July 5th, Stacy was formally arrested and sent to the St. Louis County Jail. Despite her attempts to absolve her sister, Christy was also put in juvenile detention. Stacy lay on the metal bed, completely exhausted. She'd been up for nearly 24 hours and needed to sleep. But when she closed her eyes, all she saw was her father, a rictus smile plastered on his face. A part of Stacy couldn't believe Tom was really dead. It seemed like he was all around her, just waiting to pounce as soon as she let her guard down. She worried that if she fell asleep, she would wake to find him standing inside her cell, or worse, lying beside her in bed. Stacy thought she would be free from all this fear once she fired the gun. She killed Tom because it seemed like the only way to escape him. But even now, he haunted her from beyond his grave. During the night, Stacy was kept awake by nightmares and flashbacks. During the day, her thoughts never strayed far from Christy. Although she missed her sister terribly, Stacy's lawyers assured her it was a good thing that the state put Christy in juvenile detention. It meant she was being treated as a minor and would likely face a much lesser charge if she was prosecuted at all. But the lawyers were wrong. In late August, the state decided to charge 16-year-old Christy as an adult. After almost two months, Christy was transferred to the St. Louis County Jail and the sisters were reunited. It was anything but a joyous occasion. All it meant was that Christy was facing possible prison time. Shortly after, their mother Deborah came to visit her daughters for the first time. Instead of comforting them, she was stern. She wanted to know exactly what happened on July 4th. When Stacy didn't offer swift answers, Deborah lashed out. She blamed Stacy for everything, especially 16-year-old Christie's incarceration. Stacy saw red. Deborah was the only person who could have saved her and Christie. She could have asked more questions, paid more attention, even flown Stacy and Christy to Guam and freed them from Tom forever. But she didn't. She chose not to. Instead, she lunged across the table, ready to claw at her mother. Another inmate had to hold her back. Deborah left the visiting area after that. She and Stacy wouldn't speak for nearly two years. During that time, Stacy and Christy had to navigate legal proceedings with almost no familial support. Police, still unaware of the extent of Tom's abuse, assumed the sisters conspired to kill their father to inherit his estate. Because his mother had recently died, Tom's assets were valued at around $500,000. Although 16-year-old Christy didn't want a penny from her father, she was so nervous during interrogations that she simply told police what they wanted to hear. Ultimately, 
Christy was cowed into accepting a plea bargain. She pled guilty to conspiracy to commit murder in return for a five-year sentence. In January of 1991, about seven months after Tom's murder, 17-year-old Christy was transferred to a Wren's Correctional Institution in Cedar City, Missouri. Stacy, too, was offered a plea bargain. If she admitted to committing the murder for monetary gain, she would serve just 15 years. But Stacy refused. Murdering her father was the worst thing she'd ever done. From that moment forward, she wanted to be better. She would rather spend the rest of her life behind bars than agree to a false story. Still, a mental block kept her from being completely honest about the abuse she had endured. According to Dr. Christine Grogan, an author and professor who wrote about Stacy's case, reluctance to break the silence regarding father-daughter incest is quite common. Indeed, Dr. Grogan writes that, in at least one other case of a daughter killing an abusive father, the daughter pleaded guilty to avoid recounting the past in front of a judge and jury. The decision to choose silence over possible freedom was likely influenced by numerous factors, but according to an article published in the National Women's Studies Association Journal, the pain and shame inflicted by sexual abuse have silencing effects. Although Stacy was able to say her father sexually abused her, shame, guilt, and fear kept her from giving specific details to her lawyers. This in turn harmed her defense. It was over two years before Stacy actually went to trial. In the meantime, she searched for small moments of happiness at the St. Louis County Jail. She started seeing a court-appointed counselor who gave her a workbook called The Courage to Heal. The workbook changed Stacy's life. It showed her that what Tom did to her wasn't her fault. It helped her view herself as a survivor, not just a victim. Because of what the book taught her, Stacy was able to begin the long and arduous process of forgiving herself. She also rediscovered her love for her mother, a bond that Tom had been chipping away at since Stacy was a toddler. Stacy wrote her mother a letter and reconnected with Deborah as the date of her trial approached. Two weeks before 20-year-old Stacy appeared in court in October of 1992, she got wonderful news. 18-year-old Christy had been released from prison after serving just half of her five-year sentence. Stacy couldn't have been happier. Although Stacy was haunted by her actions on July 4th, Christy's release meant that all the suffering of the last two years hadn't entirely been in vain. With the possibility of a life sentence still hanging over her head, Stacy accepted that she may have given up her own life so that Christy could live hers. Before she entered the courtroom on October 27, 1992, Stacy knew things looked bad. She needed to make a compelling testimony to convince the jury that she killed her father in self-defense. But according to Stacy, she still couldn't use the word rape. Even after completing the workbook, her shame and guilt overwhelmed her. It was one thing to talk about her past with her psychologist, but it was something else entirely to tell a room full of strangers what she'd been through. She couldn't bring herself to testify on her own behalf. Unfortunately, her public defender didn't know the severity of the abuse, so they couldn't testify effectively either. There was no physical evidence that could definitively prove what Tom did. 
and Stacy's inability to provide details made it possible for the prosecution to argue that she was making it all up. To make matters worse, the prosecuting attorney's boss was a man who had a reputation for letting sex offenders off easy. Although it hasn't been proven that Robert McCullough, the prosecuting attorney's boss, knew Tom personally, they both frequented the same bar and were members of the same social circle. Stacy's old babysitter, Wendy, and her court-appointed psychologist both testified that she had been sexually abused. But McCullough argued that the Courage to Heal workbook planted false memories of abuse in Stacy's head. McCullough claimed that Tom was a drunk and violent man, but that didn't make him a rapist. McCullough openly called Stacy a bald-faced liar and insisted that she killed her father in cold blood. He wanted the 20-year-old, who he said murdered her father for his $500,000 estate, prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Anyone who knew Stacy and Christie knew how tenuous the prosecution's argument was. Tom hadn't been able to keep a job since he and Deborah got divorced. The assets he did have weren't liquid, and it's unclear whether or not Stacy and Christie even knew how much money they could have inherited. Nevertheless, the prosecution argued that Stacy was planning a hit on her father. When it didn't work out, they said, she decided to kill Tom herself. Stacy's violence had been motivated by self-preservation, but it was difficult to defend in court. Since her father was asleep when she first shot him, there was technically no threat of imminent danger. In an attempt to argue insanity, expert psychologists testified that Stacy was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and dissociative disorder, a condition that caused her to lose memory and awareness, allowing her to detach from her body and leave reality to cope with abuse. Dissociation can help one cope with trauma, but it can also detach one from the consequences of their actions. According to criminologist and professor Dr. Kathleen M. Heidi, Stacy's combination of PTSD and dissociation meant that it was highly unlikely that she could access the higher cortical processes of the brain associated with thinking, deliberation, and judgment and formulate the intent to hurt her father. The jury, however, wasn't interested in why Stacy pulled the trigger. Even if she had been suffering from PTSD and dissociation, she still murdered Tom, and that was all that seemed to matter. After five hours of deliberation, jurors returned the verdict. Stacy Lannert was guilty of first-degree murder. Stacy waited over a month to receive her formal sentence. In the meantime, she kept up with Christy, who had since finished her GED and gotten a job as a waitress. Unsurprisingly, Christy continued to struggle emotionally and psychologically. Her relationship with Stacy became strained as she found it difficult to speak to her older sister. She was overwhelmed with guilt because she was the sibling who walked free. Stacy was more alone than ever in December of 1992 when Judge Stephen H. Goldman handed down her sentence, life in prison without the possibility of parole. It was by all accounts, except the prosecution's, an excessively harsh punishment. Judge Goldman himself said the decision was severe for a 20-year-old and that a conventional life sentence would have been more appropriate. 
Usually, parole is only withheld when inmates are likely to reoffend if released. In refusing Stacy the possibility of parole, the prosecution characterized her as a dangerous criminal rather than a young woman driven to violence after a decade of abuse. Stacy tried to appeal her case, but to no avail. After that, she decided that she couldn't spend her life dwelling on what could have been. She knew that although Tom pushed her to make her bed, she still had to lie in it. Up next, Stacy tries to find a way out of prison. Now, back to the story. After murdering her sexually abusive father, 20-year-old Stacy Lannard was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole in December of 1992. She was incarcerated at Wren's Correctional Institution, the same place her younger sister Christy had recently been released from. It was a battle to stay positive inside. On one hand, Stacy was glad to be free from the abuse that defined her childhood. Although she still had nightmares and flashbacks, she knew Tom couldn't physically hurt her anymore. She focused on healing by connecting with other survivors. Her mother, Deborah, frequently mailed her the Survivors of Incest Anonymous newsletter, and Stacy, inspired by the stories she read, eventually published an article about her own experience with psychological dissociation. She felt good after working on the article, but struggled to find a greater sense of purpose behind bars. Her life was essentially at a dead end. Accepting her fate became more and more difficult as the reality of a life sentence sunk in. Five years passed, then six, then seven. Even as she approached eight years behind bars, Stacy stayed in contact with her lawyers, hoping they would help her find a way out. Unfortunately, they all but guaranteed her sentence would be upheld, even if she tried to appeal. In appellate courts, judges do not hear new evidence or witness testimony. Instead, they simply make sure laws were applied properly in the original trial. Without increased expert testimony on her psychological condition, it was highly unlikely Stacy's sentence would ever be overturned. There was, however, one more option. She could ask the governor of Missouri, Mel Carnahan, for clemency. Stacy completed her petition and sent it to Carnahan toward the end of his term in the year 2000. She explained that she had been driven to commit murder by a decade of severe sexual and psychological abuse. Although she couldn't put words to it at 18 years old, she had been suffering from battered child syndrome or BCS. According to Dr. Henry Kemp, who first coined the term in 1962, battered child syndrome is a clinical condition in young children who have received serious physical abuse. At the time, however, Dr. Kemp focused on the physical manifestations of BCS, which was mainly used in court as a way to prosecute child abusers. It would take decades before the psychological effects of BCS like PTSD, anxiety, dissociation, hypervigilance, and nightmares were researched. Just a year after Stacy's trial, the first judicial decision validating the use of battered child syndrome as a defense for murder was written. In 1992, Stacy's situation was somewhat unprecedented. By 2000, however, it seemed clear that the harsh sentence she received was a miscarriage of justice. 
According to an article in St. Louis Magazine, Governor Carnahan had every intention of granting Stacy her freedom, but he died in October of 2000, before he had a chance to sign the papers and formally commute her sentence. Stacy was devastated, but she wouldn't be deterred. Her freedom was so close she could almost touch it. After Carnahan's death, a new governor, Bob Holden, took office. Although it would be almost four years until he was up for re-election, Stacy filed her petition once again in early 2001. The following year, she did an interview with Glamour magazine to drum up public sympathy for her case. She was nervous to discuss her past with such a big media outlet, but according to her lawyers, popular support can make or break her clemency petition. The Glamour article included a section entitled, Was Stacey Leonard Sentenced Too Harsh?, that included similar cases and their verdicts, all of which were more merciful than Stacey's. The author of the article and the co-author of Stacey's biography, Kristen Kemp, pointed out that Stacey's sentence was almost unimaginably harsh when looked at through the lens of legal precedents. People who murder their parents after prolonged abuse almost never reoffend and benefit much more from psychological counseling than imprisonment. Stacy was not a violent person. There was no reason for her to stay in jail. Soon after Glamour published Stacy's interview, people all around the country knew her name. As Bob Holden approached the end of his term in 2004, Stacy waited with bated breath to receive word from the governor. Holden commuted the sentences of a few Missouri inmates, but Stacy wasn't one of them. In fact, he ignored Stacy's petition altogether. At 32 years old, Stacy had been in prison for a total of 14 years, and it looked like that was just the beginning. After Governor Holden refused to commute her sentence, Stacy fell into a depression that seemed impossible to fight off. Powerlessness was pervasive behind bars. The only sense of agency she had came from small choices she could make throughout the day. Things like whether she wore her hair up or down or what color socks she put on. Stacy tried to cope as well as she could. In her free time, she trained service dogs and taught fitness classes. Deborah and Christy came to visit her every so often, and she lived for these moments of connection with the outside world. But even so, when the evening came, she bitterly watched sitcoms in the common area and envied the families laughing together on television. Stacy's lawyers encouraged her to stay strong. For every governor that left office, a new one entered. Matt Blunt, a younger and perhaps more merciful man than Bob Holden, was elected in 2005. Despite everything she'd been through, Stacy allowed herself to feel hopeful. She filed her clemency petition for the third time and waited with bated breath. Matt Blunt was up for re-election in 2008 when Stacy was 36 years old. Most governors commuted sentences on Thanksgiving or Christmas, but both holidays passed with no word. Stacy felt the bitterness return. Governor Carnahan had been ready to grant her freedom eight years prior. It wasn't fair that Holden and Blunt didn't honor his decision after his death. New Year's Day of 2009 came and went without a whisper from Governor Blunt. 
Stacy resigned herself to the fact that she'd be waiting at least another four years for freedom. Then, on Saturday, January 10, 2009, as she was reading a magazine in the common area, an officer called her to the front office over the loudspeaker. Stacy's stomach dropped at the sound of her name. She assumed she'd done something wrong during the morning headcount to get herself in trouble. She shuffled to the front office, staring down at her feet. But when she arrived, there was no grim punishment waiting. Instead, an officer told her she had an important call. A small bud of hope bloomed in Stacy. When she picked up the phone, her hands shook with anticipation. When she heard her lawyer's voice on the other end of the line, her heart skipped a beat. Governor Blunt had just ordered her immediate release from prison. The phone almost slipped right out of Stacy's hand. For a moment, she couldn't speak. Then she started bawling. For so long, Stacy had felt nothing but guilt. She believed the abuse her father put her through was her own fault. She felt responsible for Christie's imprisonment. She regretted pulling the trigger on Tom every single day. But Governor Blunt's decision to commute her sentence meant she'd been punished long enough. If the state could forgive her, she could forgive herself. On January 16, 2009, Stacy walked free. Her mother, Deborah, came to pick her up and hugged her tightly. Over the next few months, Deborah and others helped Stacy get back on her feet. It was difficult to adjust. The world had changed drastically between 1990 to 2009. Stacy changed too. Prison didn't have mirrors. The last time she'd seen her own reflection, she'd been a skinny 20-year-old. Her face and body were so different, she hardly recognized them as her own. Less than six months after her release, Stacy was invited to do an interview on The Oprah Winfrey Show. She used her platform to tell her story and advocate for other victims. According to Stacy, abuse could not be stopped until it was brought to light. When Oprah looked at Stacy with sympathy and understanding, Stacy felt for the first time in her life entirely redeemed. Sometimes when she was out in public, People recognized her from her photographs in Glamour or her interview on Oprah. All of the feedback she got was positive. People didn't look at her with disgust, the way she'd once looked at herself. They were happy she was home. Today, Stacy lives with her long-term partner, Elliot Freeman, in Maplewood, Missouri. She runs a nonprofit for victims of sexual abuse called Healing Sisters. In addition to her charitable work, Stacy attended law school and now has a career as a public defender. It has been difficult for Deborah, Stacy, and Christy to rebuild their relationships, especially with the publicity surrounding Stacy's imprisonment and release. But all three Lannert women have worked on healing together. Christy is now married with a daughter of her own. Coming into her new role as a mother has helped her reconnect with her family. Stacy doesn't regret the years she spent in prison. In her own words, I regret the actions that led me there, but I really like who I have become. Having that behind me, it moves me forward.
Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. Among the many sources we used for this episode, we found Redemption, a story of sisterhood, survival, and finding freedom behind bars by Stacey Lannard and Kristen Kemp extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Don't forget to follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories for the spookiest thrillers ever imagined, collected from all around the world and all throughout time. Alastair Murden brings a new story to life every Thursday. Follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.